Hello, and welcome back to the Railway Men podcast. Don't worry, we didn't miss anything out from our analysis on the Hull defeat. We don't want to submit you to more talk on that game. Instead, we were lucky to sit down last week with someone who has become synonymous with the club over recent times. I hope you enjoy this one. Hello, so as you've just heard, today is not about the recent games or player performances. It's a different type of episode with a special guest. But before we introduce them, I'll introduce you to my sidekick for the day. It's Alex Arani. Hi, Alex. Hello, Stu. How are you going? I'm all right, thanks, mate. You excited for this one? Oh, the big one. We've got the star vehicle. We've got the main man. <laughs> the one that we all want to hear from. Not Steve Hatton, not Tim... Not Tim Robinson, not Steve Davis, the big one today. Looking forward to it. Well, best introducing then. It is, uh, as Alex has absolutely underplayed, uh, it's the one and only Pete Morris. Hi, Pete. Hello. I didn't know whether to chuckle through that or not. I thought I'd better be quiet. <laughs> How exciting is it for you to be in the spotlight the other way around for a change? Um, well, I don't know if exciting is the right word, but it's uh, interesting. It's something different, so we're uh, looking forward to it. Before we get started then, Pete, I thought I'd give you a little quiz, test you, uh, test you out straight away. I'd like oh, yeah. you, if you can tell me, what's the link here between Dean Ashton, Harry Styles, Pete Morse, and this podcast's own Neil Price? That's an easy... I was really worried when you said you were going to quiz me, uh-huh. but I've got that one. It's Holmes Chapel Great, I think the heading is uh, for that one. Yeah, the, the, all yeah. the best people come from Holmes Chapel. Yeah, so just wanted to get that in early. We do share <laughs> the same village growing up. Um, so obviously you um, have a different memory of football than I do growing up in Holmes Chapel. I wasn't very good. You were quite good. Do you want to tell us about your earliest memories of football? Uh, well, I went to Brayton Primary School, lived in Brayton just down the road from Holmes Chapel. Um, so um, yeah, my earliest memories of football. Well, the first thing I can remember is... Um, I think was it Norman Whiteside scoring the winner in the 1985 FA Cup final. I vividly remember that and thinking I quite like that game. Um, <laughs> and then and then and then in a weird way, although I can't particularly remember a start point, I, I, I can't remember not playing football. Every opportunity, obviously, in the garden and of uh, break time and when you get home, I've got two brothers, so we used to play run at the park, school team, and then obviously that continued when you. When I got to Home Chapel, by the time I, was, I got to Home Chapel, uh, comprehensive school, obviously at eleven, I was um, I was already at the Alex, uh, and things had already got you know relatively serious by then. So it was um, yeah, it, it, I, I, as far as I can remember, it's, it's always been football for me. How old were you when you um, signed for the Alex then, and how did that work? Um, I think I, I think I was about eight. Um, uh, a lad it was actually his dad was the head teacher at Britain uh, Primary School. Steve Whitaker, his son Dave Whitaker. I don't know if you remember the name. Um, he played, he played for Ulster and a few, and Nantwich and a few uh, non-league sides. He was already at the Alex. He was in the year above me, uh, and just just took me training. I think it was, obviously things were a lot more um, relaxed and um, you know less formula to stuff. And if somebody knew a good player, he could take them training. So. 
my first training session was on the old AstroTurf uh, outside uh, the stadium at Dresty Road. I remember running down the wing there and then, you know, not realising that uh, it wasn't a it wasn't a perfect rectangle. It, that pitch started closing in on me and I, I just banged into it. But clearly I must have done well enough to uh, to be invited back the next week and, and so it went on. No, it's my only memory of that AstroTurf outside the old main stand was playing there in a primary school t- tournament. And uh, Neil Lennon was walking past. I don't know why he was at the club and he played the night before and scored. And I said, nice goal yesterday, Neil. And he replied in the cheers, absolutely not interested in talking to me whatsoever in the way you'd expect nowadays if you saw him on telly, him to respond to a small child. Talk us through your time at the academy then. I also have a question from Steve Hatton who comes on the pod occasionally. He'd like to know who the best player you played with in the academy was. Um. I mean, it's a, it's obviously a strange thing because you grow up, um, and every every year, well, back then, and I suppose it's still the same every year. Um, there's a cull, if you like, uh, where players get released, um, and and quite often, the players that are superstars at eleven, twelve, thirteen, don't don't end up making it. Um, the best player in my group by a mile was Pete Smith who I think he made one sub appearance in the end or something like that. But he was, he, you know, he was sensei. He was nailed on. Nobody would have ever believed that he wouldn't have uh, become a real top player. Um, and then, you know, conversely, Seth Johnson um, couldn't get in our team at, at 14. Well, no, I think 14 he could. About 12, we went to a tournament in Holland and I just remember him just being sub all the time. Um, but he, he, you know, in, in an opposite way, he just improved at a, an unbelievable rate. And by the time that we were 16, you know, still at school, maybe. time he was in the youth team, we didn't spend much time in the youth team, went straight to the reserve and then straight to the first team. So, yeah, I mean, the, you know, there's, 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 so, there's so many good players, but a, a lot of them, you know, obviously Kenny Lump was, was always a standout. He was in the a year below me. So we had a strong, um, you know, YTS group, if you like. If you look at it like lower sixth and upper sixth at school, um, Lunty was in the year below us, like um, and Rob Hulse and that lot, and we had um, Seth and Pete Smith and Neil Critchley. Um, so we so we had a real good group. Dave Dave Wright was coming through as well. So all those players, but like I say, it's, you can't always tell the, the Nick Powells. You can tell. Um, I mean, I'm leaping ahead here, but when I was coaching the academy for a few years, I had the group that Nick was Nick Powell's in and. He, 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 you know that was obvious. Um, he, he was he was genius, but you know some some of the kids that looked the best players at fourteen never made it, and some of the players that were just clinging on um, at fourteen, fifteen ended up being superstars. Pete, was there any particular reason you don't think they kicked on? Because sometimes you get it when kids get to fourteen, they're in you know, a big academy, it goes to their head, they never kick on. Was it just those that were a bit younger hadn't physically developed? <laughs> To the same extent, was it drive and willpower, do you think? Or was there anything, is there one thing that those superstars at 12 that don't make it, as opposed to, you know, if you look at an Ashley Westwood, I know it was a bit later on, but you'd have never thought looking at that 2012 side, he'd have the one who'd had such a long career at the top level. Yeah. So it's like, is it, where is it that it falls down? It's a bit of a simplistic answer to say it can be a combination of things, but I think, I think you touched on a main one is physicality. Um, I mean, you know, you, you get you get to 11, 12 and some lads are shaving every day, whereas you get to like 20 and other lads still aren't shaving and they're just developing at completely different rates. Um, you know, some, some are men, you know, really young and obviously that really helps you helps you on the pitch. But then attitude is the next best one. And, and you've, you've touched on an ideal example there in Ashley Westwood. 
who's just got a brilliant attitude. And he, he really was a, a maybe, you know, somebody who was like, well, you know, give him another year. He's out, he did well at Nantwich. Are they going to let him go? Oh, well, we'll keep him a bit longer. But he was determined. Um, obviously, he'd come through the academy and he, and he had all the basic techniques. Um, and he was, a, you know, was, was small and not strong then. But, you know, th- those almost are the, are the, are the best ones. Um, you know, and the ones that the academy can feel the, the proudest of, the, you know, the, the Ashley Westwood ones rather than the Nick Powell's. Um, I mean, obviously they had a big input into what Nick Powell uh, became, but you, you get the feeling that wherever he was, he was going to make a footballer. Whereas Ashley Westwood, and I think he'd say that, he, he really is a, a crew Alex creation. Obviously born with talent, obviously got a, a good attitude, which comes from himself and his family but really was made into a footballer by excellent coaching and, and the work that they've put into him. And, and like I said, I'd, I'd be in no doubt that he'd say that himself. Is there anyone else who, other than Ashley Westwood then, that's gone on to have a career much bigger than you thought they would based on just that attitude and the coaching that crew provide for these players? Um, yeah. Um, not the best academy example, but um, I, I think Luke Varney. Really, uh, I mean, I, I, mean, I, ha- I knew you were going to say that. I don't know why. Well, I, I have to hold my hands up, and he's the one that really taught me a lesson because I was getting fed up of watching him. And I used to say, I can't watch him anymore, he's driving me mad. Um, but I mean, that was really uh, one of, among the gifts that Dario had. That was key. He could see a player and he could see where he was supposed to play. And even if he wasn't hitting the level that we needed to. We needed him to on that given match day, or for those for those months um, where you know we're all, all crew fans and we're all accustomed to suffering almost suffering that spell when they're not ready and they're not good enough mm-hmm. to get to the bit when they are. But he was the one where I don't ever let myself do that again because I just think no, like they see him training every day, they they see what they can do. Just because he's not doing it today doesn't mean that he can't do it because he just clicked and turned it and he's had a great career. And yes, he came later, um, obviously spotted by Neil Baker, a real raw talent. But, you know, the coaching even then has made a big difference to him. Again, I'm sure he'd say that. And, um, you know, he, he was someone who came out of the blue and obviously played at the top level and, um, like I say, really taught me a lesson. I must say, I remember watching Luke Varney for the first time. It was... Lincoln in the League Cup, actually, the 5-1 loss. And we were dreadful that night. We lost 5-1. Richard Walker, I think, scored just before half-time. Um, but Varney was the only one who came out with any sort of credit that day, I thought. Because I remember looking at him. My old man went with me. And he was lively. He was pacey. So it's he's one where... He's one of those players. He's more he's come from, not come from the academy. But, you know, you can see a footballer. But it's just like, will it come to fruition? And there's sort of been several of those in the academy. I remember watching Colin Daniel for a spell, thinking he could be quite a good footballer. And he's not had a bad career. He sort of hung around League One, League Two level. So I think there's plenty of them. Are we losing that gift, though, almost, of sort of picking them up from non-league? I know we've got Wintel in the current side, but there's not been too many Varneys of recent times, has there? And I suppose that's because a lot more sides are shopping in non-league because they're trying to find that rough gem. And do you think we're just a step behind on clubs now? Or do you think, we're actually, we're just getting gazumped? Uh, I, I think the competition is fierce uh, and I think the crew don't have the scouting network they used to have. They used to have a sort of a team of uh, part-time scouts that, you know, that Neil Baker really coordinated and was head of. Um, so th- there's both things there. Uh, you know, I, I'm, I, I, think we, I think I have to say and be honest that the, 
they're not spotting them. Um, they aren't. They aren't out there. I mean, there's, there's still there's still a, a network of you know people that you know contacts in the game, but it's it's not the same as getting out there and and watching them. Um, but but then another thing you, you mentioned the price. I mean, you, you can't go to the national league and do that anyway. You, you know, you've got to go lower than that. And obviously, there are the Varneys and the Tom Popes. Uh, and the Colin Littles and those sort of players, but I mean, you know, the, and the Ryan Wintles, of course. But you know, they're the competition is also fierce for them. But you know, you really are taking a lot of chances. And for every Ryan Wintle, there's there's fifteen Jordan Connertons, isn't there? Um, and and you know, the, it, it's a real difficult thing to do. And the crew haven't got the same money to have as many of those guys hanging round, for want of a better word. They haven't got the money to be as patient as they used to be. Um, and all those things are, are factors into it. And, and and the last thing I'd say is the the um, the computerized scouting, if you like, um, you know, Y Scout and those sort of uh, uh, programs that you can pay a subscription to, and almost like, well, I still call it Championship Manager because I'm old, but like Football Manager, you, you type yeah. in what you want and, and you get Tumor and any. I mean, uh, I'm, I've been willing to put money on. That's where he came through. You know, you want a big centre forward, bit of pay, you know, a certain age and. You get some options, and then you and then you look into it, and um, all those sort of things are are probably allowing crew to get away with um, you know n- not not being quite as uh, on top of the non-league scene as as they were. Um, well, I mean they are still they are still trying. You know, I mean Joe Malkin from Nantwich trained over the summer that obviously didn't work out, but they, you know they are they are they are still trying. It's not something that's completely dead, and they are aware of it. But I just think for a number of reasons, a lot harder than it used to be. Is Dave Artell? Do you think there's a possibility his um, abrasiveness with opposition managers, opposition, is that working against us with scouting or is it not really affecting us, the players we're looking at? Uh, because crew fans love Dave Artel, but opposition fans, managers, do they feel the same way about him? Won an award, didn't he? What award League did he manager. win? Yeah, and that was, voted for, that was voted for by managers, wasn't it? Yeah. That yeah. Was... Did Dino Marmorio vote for him? <laughs> <doing that? laughs> I highly doubt that. But I think I think that um, and obviously winning that award that was voted for by um, his um, his contemporaries shows that it, you know he's not getting on too bad with him. And I also think that you know in every aspect, I mean, one of the impressive things about him is he's he's willing to learn. He's willing to hold his hands up and say, "I've made a mistake." He's willing to look back and um, pick up on things that he can do better. And that is that's absolutely one of them. Um, uh, the start of the not not, not last season the season before he had a bet with uh, well I won't say we had a bet with a couple of people that he wouldn't get um, I can't remember the number but say three yellow cards when yellow, when yellow cards came back oh, from managers he, he had a bet with a couple of people saying he won't get uh, 20 quid I won't get uh, won't get three yellow cards and, and of course he, he got about five yellow cards and a red um, but last season was much improved I think he I think he realised that that wasn't um you know, wasn't uh, helping in any way. Wasn't helping the team. Wasn't helping, you know, himself with referees. Wasn't helping himself with rival managers. And actually, you know, it, that sort of, you know, too much of that on the touchline can create the type of game that doesn't really suit Crew. You know, if, if a game becomes a war, a nasty war, although I think Crew have improved uh, under his reign. Uh, you know, in terms of physicality and will to win and resilience and determination, all those things. I still think it's more likely to suit Northampton Town or uh, Stevenage or whoever 
and the personnel that they've got than than it, uh, it than it's than it does for us. So I think um, I think you've got a point that it 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 might have been detrimental, but now I think that's been sorted out, and the award that he won is uh, demonstrates that. Yeah, no, just a small point on there. What you just said, Alex and I were both at the game. He got sent off the season before last away at Swindon, and oh my we god, we won that game. But I remember coming out, all the crew fans were just talking about the fact he'd been sent off for nothing. He'd blown up about nothing. But I think that was the game that he then said, I've got to learn not to do that anymore because that's not helping the team. But in his defence, the Swindon game, I go to, I was with someone on the train back to London, very mild-mannered chap, and he was rather angry with the ref to the extent that he'd have waited for him in the car park if he didn't win this game. And I've never seen this fella raise his voice. So I think Artel, when he blew up that day, was justified because if I remember rightly, Chris Porter had a hat trick goal disallowed when he was behind. Yeah, he was behind Calamainly, who played yeah. the pass, and then there was a, a penalty that we didn't get, and then two minutes later, the same thing happened in the Swindon in our area for Swindon, which is probably less than the one we didn't get given, and the ref gave the penalty. It was a, the worst refereeing display I've ever seen. Uh, maybe actually David Rocks against Cambridge this time last year, but you know there are times when he's justified, but when you're in a position as a manager. You can't. It's difficult not to rise to it. But you've got to sort of take the emotion out of it, because if you're jumping up and down, you know, cursing, losing the plot, actually, it's going to affect your decision making. I think um, when you're on the pitch, I think you can get away with it. Cause sometimes you can ride on that emotion um, and really drive your team on. You've seen it with players before, but with a manager, when it's more of a strategic role at times, right? What change do I need to make to influence this game? Can it sometimes get impacted by you know the anger cursing through your blood, coursing through your blood? Um, and the emotion involved. So it is, I do think he's got better at it. I still think there's room for improval. I think him sitting in the stand for the first half at Gresty Road has helped um, just because it's almost taken him away from the action. Yeah, I think, I think that's a, that's part of a, d- a deliberate move. Um, and I, I agree with what you're saying. I mean, fa- fans often, you know, want to see a manager who's very uh, demonstrative and, uh, you know, right on the edge of the technical area and contesting decisions. And, and, and I think there's a balance to be struck. But I'm not sure that I'm not sure how much um, you know. You know, it, it's got it needs to be instructions and advice and help. I'm not so sure all that sort of thing helps uh, too much. And I think he, I think he's as we, as we probably we're all agreeing. I think he's probably got the right balance now. First half uh, in the stand, second half he's out there, you know, to be seen, to help, to you know, to uh, cajole and, and do all those things. And and and, and look, you you know, there is an argument for at least representing yourself against referees, if you like, you know, if you make it too easy for them, then, you know, then it can be, uh, you know, that can be detrimental. But at the same time, I always think, look, we're all human. If I always think if I was a referee and I thought the manager was a, a so-and-so, you know, I'd probably go against it. It it certainly wouldn't make me think, well, I'm going to, I'm going to try and appease him with a few decisions. That's for sure. It's more like it's a balancing act, isn't it? Because I remember, sorry to interrupt, my old P teacher. We we had a rather useful football side that somehow I was a part of, and he he gave us a great bit of a sage bit of advice. I thought referees are always going to be biased. Make sure they're biased in your favour. And when Artel is effing and blinding, is kicking off, you're just thinking, well, actually, I'm going to probably be, you know, the opposition are going to get more decisions, especially from that. So you know, it completely leads on to that point. I completely agree with it. And it's like you've got to you've got to you've got to find that balance in it. But there are times where referees are human; they will bow to pressure. So it's like I think it's okay for sometimes the players to get on at the referee, 
because you can get a decision. Like when you see a bad tackle going, eight players surround the ref, a yellow card becomes a red. That's the time to do it. When it's a nothing ball, is it our throw or their throw? Don't kick up a fuss. Go with the decision. Get on with it. And I don't know whether Artel still just can blow his top a bit with that. Yeah, I think he's. I think he's probably still got it. Got it in him because he's he's that sort of character. He's obviously a, you know a very competitive person. Um, uh, you know, and <laughs> it always makes me chuckle because you know pressure pressures for tires and. I'm not bothered and I don't look at the league table and all that stuff. But then next minute he's sprinting into the corner flag to celebrate a goal and losing his uh, car keys. And those two, those two things don't really marry up. But I mean, that, that, those are the things that um, I think have really endeared himself to, to endeared him to crew fans. You know, they, 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 they like those contradictions in many ways. And, uh, you know, even if we, we don't always quite believe him that uh, he's not bothered and he never looks at the league table because he seems to know every stat in the book at the same time and all the, you know, previous uh, next opponents, previous games and goals against and times of score. He knows everything, but doesn't know where we are in the league. Well, we don't believe that. But, I mean, that's, that's his character. And, um, and, and, you know, I think it's, uh, I think it's good. And it, it's, it's good to have character. It's good to be individual and um, you know uh, fingers crossed it's, it's it's all been going in the right way for him sticking to the theme of managers then there's obviously one that was um quite instrumental in uh, your time at the academy talking about Dario Guardi Steve Hatton would like to know what's your best Dario anecdote that you've got no and I need some prior warning for these uh for these uh-huh. questions Pro- probably i mean i mean Dario would I think was was brilliant for everyone, but he was he was particularly brilliant for me. I mean, uh, I, um, I I wasn't a superstar player by any stretch of the imagination. If I'd have made it, I'd have been a complete product of the academy um, and a product of of, um, of 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 his coaching and his advice. And I whatever I whatever I did or didn't achieve, and whatever I might have achieved but never did, or, or whatever it was, it was all down to him. And uh, and the way that he was, but I mean, you know, it, it didn't. It didn't. What it didn't mean is you'd get any extra favour um, or anything like that. You st- you still had to do it on your own merits, and you had to earn your contract and and, and all the rest of it. And it, you know, and if you weren't if you weren't good enough, um, then you weren't good enough, and he'd be the one to tell you. One one example of that really is I remember playing in a in a friendly. I think it was a testimonial at Congleton Town. Um, for a for a Congleton player, by the way, not a crew player, that wouldn't have been uh, uh, you know, much of a money spinner. Um, but um, yeah, and we went down, and we had a, we had a really good team out. Um, players like Chris Lightfoot were playing, and we had a strong team um, all across the park. Players, who, a lot of players who played, and, and and we went down, and we probably thought, well, we're going to turn these over pretty easy. And anyway, we did, we didn't. We in fact we might have been three 0 down. They played out of the skin, scored a, a, a worldy goal. A, a lad who'd been in the Liverpool, I think it's called Russell Payne, played in the Liverpool academy, and obviously hadn't made it. Anyway, in this game, I got I got a dead leg, quite a bad dead leg. But because we were getting stuffed by Congleton Town, I didn't dare say anything. You can't you can't limp off and say oh, I'm injured and cry off in a game like that. You've got to try and get through it. This happened in the first half. Neil Baker was taking the team, but you always felt the presence of Darth. It was like a disturbance in the force. Like if Darth Vader had come back, you, you didn't even need to see him to know he was there. And and he was there. And he'd not said, he'd not really said anything because Bakes was taking the team. Just to interrupt you really quickly so we're clear. Neil Baker's Darth Vader, Dario's the Emperor. Well, yeah, well, maybe that's the better analogy. Uh, no, whatever age I was, for some reason, you know, if, if whoever your manager was, Steve Holland or 
you know, all the different ones you'd have through the years. Say, you know, probably this is going back further on Sundays. There might be, you know, there might be two or three pitches with two or three games on, and Dario might go and look at all of them for a spell, and you just knew he was there. I, I, I can't even describe it. I suppose subconsciously you must have heard his voice or something, but I was thinking, I don't know why, but I know he's there, and you'd look over and he'd be there. That was just the, you know, and he had that sort of aura in every room in Reese Heath. You know, he'd walk in the physio room and the atmosphere would change. Uh, everyone would start minding the P's and Q's and starting looking busy, that sort of thing. Uh, but anyway, so we, went, so we went in the uh, the dressing room at half time. Obviously, Bakes wasn't happy, Bollockins are happy, Bollockins all around. But I've got this dead leg, and the, the 15, this was in winter, it's freezing. Uh, and, this, and this 15 minutes has not done me any favours. I've now got a really tight ball in my thigh muscle, um, and I can barely walk out for the second half. Play about ten minutes, fifteen more minutes, and I'm getting to say, well, I can't walk." And uh, and and uh, in the end, I thought, "Well, I, I've got, I've got, I've got to say to Bakes." So I think, I think we just got a goal kick, and I was hobbling out back to position. I said, "I just went Bakes. I've got to come off. I can't carry on." And he went, "Right, I'll just warm up a warm up a sub." So I, I had another two minutes to sort of survive. And I think the first thing that Dario had said in the game, and I just heard him, and uh, you know, game was going on. I was just waiting to be taken off. Couldn't couldn't really move, and he went. Morsey, Morsey, stop fucking limping. And I just thought, <laughs> well, how do you stop limping? <laughs> you know, how, 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 how do I stop limping? Um, you know, I couldn't walk. And anyway, I came off the pitch, got chained, and he never spoke to me again until I was fit again. Um, and that was just that was just his way. You know, you could be you could be someone who got on with him, someone who'd known him for years, someone who um, you know had, had a good rapport with him. But uh, that didn't really matter. If he wasn't impressed by something, even by limping because you've got an injury, um, you know, he'd let you know and uh, and it didn't matter who you were. It's uh, that sort of insight, I think, that led to the football genius ch- chant for years and years at Questy Road. The uh, stop limping. OK, I'll do that then. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, yeah, you've got to be a medical genius <laughs> yeah. to sort that one out. But uh, no, no, I mean, he was, um, you know, he, I'm sure every, everyone who's been around crew long enough has met him, and he's a he's very cordial, you know, great a great guy. But he, he had an edge, uh, an edge that probably probably softened over the years. I mean, you you you, you must have listened to the the, the YouTube commentary, uh, the interview that Graham did with him. Was it at Exeter or somewhere else? Oh, Exeter. Scarborough, that's it. Scarborough. I mean, you can barely recognise him from the later years. He, he, he yeah. did mellow and, and calm down. But, um, you know, he always had that edge, edge to him and he always had that, that aura that, you you know, you just uh, you didn't mess about with. That Scarborough interview is unreal. <laughs> yeah. I've never heard anything. I can't start. I've listened to it must about like 20 times because every time I've had to laugh, I've put it on. And just the way... He goes, it's like just he's answering his own questions. He goes, and I spoke to him at half time. Is it just me, Gaffer? He goes, oh, that's not the point. That's not the point. He goes, and when you're on the pitch, uh, you could be a terrific footballer, but I do not trust you. And I'm just thinking, imagine being a player and you've got your manager saying how good you can be, but at the same time, he doesn't yeah. trust you. It's just, but, uh, just yeah. magic. But I mean, Dar- he used to be, I mean, you forget, but he, he used to be like, he used to be tough like that, Dario. I mean, I remember watching, um, I mean, I was only young and I was watching uh, a youth team, probably a youth cup game on Gresty Road with him and uh, and he was just talking to to me and a, a few of the other kids with him and saying and he was getting on at this centre forward our centre forward he was, he was saying he'll never play my first team he'll never fucking play my first team it was Dele Adebola 
Um, <laughs> you know, he, he went for a million pounds in the end. So you know, he, he, you know that, that's what he was like. And uh, I, th- I think he, I think he always felt he was improving as a manager. And uh, I think, he, I think he probably felt that you know some of those um, harsher ways weren't necessary as he got a bit older. Now, Pete, we haven't really talked on the negativity about the Barry Bennell situation. I'm not going to drag you like into that today but Tim would like to know Tim Robinson who's come on the pod occasionally he'd like to know what your opinion is if Darryl's been treated fairly or not in the fallout of all of that no not at all um, is that enough <laughs> no, <laughs> you, no, you can no, call no, it there if you want no no um, I mean I won't go on about it too much but uh, no um, I don't think he has um, I don't think the club has I don't think John Bowler has Goes obviously. I was there. Barry Bennell was there when I when I joined. I, I don't know if you read that up, that piece that I wrote, but I I saw yeah, a, I lot, a lot a lot a lot of the sinister stuff that we've we've read about um, with the poor lads who were who were affected. I saw it. You know, saw some of the techniques. Um, got invited to go there. Didn't fortunately, but might have done. But um, you know that. Uh, <laughs> I've got a million and one opinions on this, um, which I probably better not go into. But all I can say is that I, I think that uh, the judge and jury and executioner were already decided before. I don't. I think the club's been and and Dario in particular were treated very poorly because I think that was the, you know in a terrible situation and a terrible scenario. I think um, it was almost a fate accompli, and um, you know feel I feel very I feel very sorry for them all. Obviously, primarily for the um, for the lads who were affected, you know, absolutely devastated. What devastating what what happened, and for us to learn, you know, quickly going back. I mean, when, when we found out years later, we we couldn't believe it, and many of us didn't believe it, and many people n- would never believe it, and they were there the entire time. I won't I won't name names, but some some names that you would you really know just would never believe it. Even when he was in jail, that that's that's how the how well the wool was pulled over yeah. everyone's eyes, and just um, how sinister the techniques were. Yeah, and and just how how the the whole you know um, yeah everybody was duped. Everybody was duped. You know the the, the parents as, as well. Um, everyone you know was uh, was 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 part of that, and um, you know in 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 this day and age, obviously. I just think that everything was judged by the standards of this day and age. And the fact is, it wasn't, it wasn't then. It was late 80s, 90s. Things were different. Wish they, wish, uh, wish they weren't. But that's, uh, you know, that's, that's, that's development and that's people learning. But um, no, I, I don't think there was ever any, I don't think there was any, any fairness shown really to, uh, to Dario or the club. Okay. I think the, the thing is, I mean, it's terrible what's happened to everyone who was affected by it. When the national newspaper, you know, they have to sell papers. They've scented blood at a club which has had the same people in charge back then as there is today. It was ultimately, I think, the club became an easy target. And it might well be in years to come, if there's more to come from this, um, and the club has been found to do wrong, they deserve the book to be thrown at them. But everything that's happened since sort of Andy Woodward came out just under four years ago uh, with the what happened at the club has has pointed the door firmly at one man's at, at, at Barry Bennell's feet. So I think the evidence 
hasn't stacked up like, like was expected. And I just think because it hasn't and what the newspapers were hoping for it to show was X, Y and Z, um, that's why it's ended up while we're in this situation. Um, that's just my opinion on it. Yeah. Um, that I think that I think the thing is, like you said, I think the biggest, the most important point you made is we've judged what happened back then in today's terms. Well, actually, fortunately, everything has progressed at such that there's such welfare in place, there's such structures in place, there's governance in place, which I'm hoping means that we'll never see anything like that again. And that's what has progressed. And I don't think it's necessarily come from that case. That was already in place beforehand. And you know, I'm I'm I play at a cricket club now. We can't have cults in the changing room when we're allowed. You can't have mobile phones around. You've got to have X amount of people per cult. There's all of this in place that has, has progressed so much from, from, from the early 90s, late 80s. And that's, you know, so important for people to sort of take that in what happened in those terms rather than today's terms. So I think I think you explained it a lot more eloquently than I probably have, Pete. And that's why you had a career as a successful journalist and I never did. <laughs> well, I'm not sure I wouldn't say that for sure. You had a few good columns in the, the Chronicle uh, that um, probably count as a success. <laughs> I, I think that um, the biggest difficulty for somebody like me in particular who was there and, and, and literally knew all the people involved um, and, and, and for crew fans, you know, crew, crew is a club. And of course, the, the longevity of Dario and, and, and John and other people like that, it means that ev- virtually everyone either knows Dario, spoke to him, knows someone who knows him, knows, you know, a kid who's, uh, who's been at the club. Everyone's got, a, a, you know, a, a first or at least secondhand experience of, of Dario in the club. And, and with no, um, you know, no neg- you know, all positives, really. When this, when this happened... There was a there's a feeling which I think remains, which is which is pretty pretty much why I hesitate when you when you ask me the question. The two positions, n- number one first and foremost, being dreadfully dreadfully sympathetic to the boys that were affected, disgusted at the abhorrent things that went on, gutted that you you were sort of, it was going on around you and you never knew. All those, all those emotions and feelings, and and you know the the, the absolute uh, certainty that Barry Bunnell deserves everything he gets and more. That that's number one position. But number two position is sympathy for people like Dario and John uh, and anyone else who was there, and and me and my dad and their dads and everyone else who didn't know. Sympathy, sympathy for that because it's not nice, um, and you feel awful about it but you feel sympathetic to to the, to those people that you've mentioned because it wasn't it wasn't their fault and those two positions to me aren't mutually exclusive you can actually be both and that's what i am and i think that's what all crew fans are uh, who 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 know i think they that you know like like i say position 1 you know gutted and and and, and sorry and 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 devastated by it but two Actually, the people that we know and the, and the national media don't and don't care uh, and all those other people across the country who don't know and have no experience of it and just jump on to the first easy conclusion. And you feel like you're not really allowed to express position, position two because people just see the two things as incompatible. Well, they're, they're not incompatible. They're absolutely compatible. And that is my position uh, or positions one and two. And I stand by it, but I do hesitate to say it because... Because of what I'm saying, it's like it's like you it's like you can't it's like you can't, you're not allowed to have both both points of view. But uh, I'm sorry, I do. 
Thanks for that, Pete. I'm not going to ask you any more on that, obviously, because you know, like you say, it is still a contentious issue. I know personally when the news broke for me, um, it sort of caused an existential crisis in, you know, I'm a crew fan and we, we associate with the football teams that we support, don't we? Everybody does. It likes football, but it becomes part of your identity. And then all of a sudden, part of the crew identity, the bit that I really love, we bring kids through the academy, we develop them and then we sell them on and then they go on to be superstars somewhere else. That's one of the main things that I love about being a crew fan. But then this is tainted. So, yeah, I think it's all, I don't know, I speak from my own experiences, but finding that sort of ground where, yes, it happened. Yes, it's awful. It's a real tragedy. But not everybody who associates with Crew Alexander is guilty. And there's, there has to be that understanding somewhere. Um, for me, anyway, that's my own sort of belief on the issue. It was one man. It was one man. It wasn't. It wasn't anyone else. That's my firm belief and experience. And really, pretty much borne out by the lack of anything else that's had. You know, we've had years for something else to come out, which it, it hasn't. It just hasn't because it's not there. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I, I understand why you feel like that. But but I would urge you to to try not to um, because right. um, he's um, you know th- that man's caused enough grief and, and misery and upset and really we should try hard to not let it ruin good memories authentic memories and and and, and genuinely worthwhile memories that we've got because he doesn't he doesn't deserve to do that thanks pete um, i'm going to move on from that because i think we've talked about him for enough mm. um unfortunately i'm going to talk to you about another bad memory now um you came through the crew academy but then the story ends for you there, doesn't it, with football. Um, could you mind telling people that don't know what happened there? Yeah, no problem. So I did uh, two years YTS, as it was called back then, not Scholar. And then I got um, a year pro contract. I was a, I was a definite maybe. But yeah, I mean, I was... And, and I think back then, obviously, you know, the club were in the championship for a lot of that. And, you know, they could have a few more like me around, you know, someone that uh, Dario had a bit of faith in, but, you know, might take a bit longer. They could afford, we weren't earning much, I can tell you that. But, you know, I think, I think they had more of those sort of late developers around and those, those guys who might, might make it. And I was, I was one of them. Um, so I was unsure of where I was up to, you know, whether I was going to get a second year and it went down right to the end of the season. I think we played three games in five days, which they wouldn't do now. Uh, we played Monday, Wednesday, Friday to finish off season. The last game was against Stoke City at um, Newcastle Town. And after that, Dario pulled me and two other lads uh, in a similar position to the side and said, we were, we're going to give you another year's contract. That was a Friday. By the Monday, um, my niece had started swelling up. And I thought that, um, well, two things. I thought it was just a hard ground and three games in five days. Uh, you know, on the on the on the hard pitches of, uh, yeah. of, of of late April or May or whatever it was, and also we we're having the bleep test on the on the Monday, so I thought, well, I can't cry off this because again, it you know, <laughs> like the like the Congo to Town story, it looks a bit obvious. I thought I'm gonna have to do the bleep test. Did that next day? We were com- we were coming in and and uh, it was uh, a continuation of the bleep test. If you if you dropped out at level 15, say you'd have to start at level 15 and see how long you could survive. And I couldn't do it by then. Both knees were sort of massive. Yeah, and so it cut a long story short. There was lots of investigations. That, you know, they thought it was not some, nothing, but uh, it, it just went on. It didn't improve. Ended up seeing loads of specialists. 
going down to London to see the Olymp- GB team Olympic guy. Um, and it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's arthritis. Don't know why it started, but obviously that, that's not ideal. So that, that, that year's contract I served in the, uh, in, the, in the treatment room, which I'm disappointed hasn't been named after me. Um, in <laughs> fact, I, th- I think I spent most of that year with Rob Hulse, who'd had a back operation. I remember thinking he was in a worse situation than me. I can now report that his bank balance is definitely not in a worse situation than mine. Um, <laughs> he did all right uh, in the end, didn't he? <laughs> uh, and uh, yeah, he did. Um, so, so. Well, is he tra- he's a trained well, physio. Yeah, he can look at your knees as well now, can't he? But, um, but yeah, so. Yeah. Uh, and, and then the following summer, I, I sort of got fit enough to, to start pre season training again. Dario gave me a month to month contract to see if I could prove my fitness. And I got a couple of months into it and just, just sort of broke down and went back to square one. Um, and then obviously he was like, we can't carry on. I was like, I don't want to carry on because obviously it was miserable. And, uh, you know, it, you know, as hard as it was, it actually, uh, it wasn't a, not a relief, but it was obvious, you know, it wasn't uh, a bolt out of the blue when, uh, when, when he, uh, he, he told me and, uh, I knew I had to, had to start some, some, something else. But I mean, it, obviously that, listen, the thing is those stories are so, not, not arthritis, that's unusual, but so many get injured before you ever know their name, you know, you know, at 16, at 14, even, you know, uh, you know, serious injuries and different situations. So it's a, it's a sort of a common tale. It sounds like a sob story, but it's, it's common, but um, probably not, probably not with arthritis, but um, yeah. So, I mean, I didn't, I didn't feel very sorry for myself. Um, it, it was just, it was just time to, to, to try and do something else. I was going to ask how big, if you were to look back at it now, how big of an impact would that would you say that made on you mentally? But it sounds like you were pretty much over it before it even happened, really. Yeah, I think I'm, I think I'm exaggerating that actually because I'm going to contradict myself and say it had a bigger effect than I realised at the time. I thought that was shrugging my shoulders, and it and the, logically, I knew that it had to happen. I knew that anyway. I wasn't like I don't know if if, if it had been Nick Powell. They might have said, "Look, we'll try again, and we'll do this." I was never anywhere near to a Nick Powell. I was, you know, like I say, I, I, you know, it was fifty-fifty at best if I'd have made it. So it, it was obvious that I'd have to stop, and it wasn't a surprise. It wasn't a shock, and I thought that I was shrugging my shoulders and accepting it. But looking back, I think it, I think it was some some dark days. Like, yeah, I think I think it I think it did affect me. Um, and when I, when I went into journalism, which I just sort of fell into, um, mainly because. A uh, when I, when I had careers advisor meetings uh, at school and they said what you want to be and I was like footballer and they'd say well what's your backup and I'd think oh as if I need a backup and, but I used to say journalist just because I thought well I watch football then but I never really believed it but when when it happened to me I, I still only had that default setting I was like uh, oh I don't know journalist uh, and because I knew some of the you know Gwyn Griffiths obviously Graham uh, like called Rich Holt who's been at the Sentinel who, who were covering crew I just started doing a few bits of work for them just almost on autopilot and never really never really treated it seriously i think i was just i was just going through the motions and doing something else that clearly i was capable of doing but i think that probably the 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 uh i don't know the depression probably not the right word i don't think i was depressed but that 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 feeling that I had from you know basically all i'd ever all i'd pretty much known from eight to more or less 21 um, had, had been taken away, and I think I think it actually probably took me a few years to come out of it. Although I think I've only realised that much later on. Did you um, did the club sort of 
facilitate the journalism route or did you have to do it off your own back? I'm just thinking of you see it with the big clubs now where they say we want to educate them as people as well as footballers. Was there an approach like that at Crew to ensure that if it didn't go to plan, there was always that backup or did you um, sort of have to do it off your own back? I think, do you know what? I think, I think part, of the, part of the reason my memory of it is poor is, is probably because of, the, of, of what I'm talking about. My memory of it is, it is a blur that time even though, like I say, it wasn't a shock. It's a blur. But I do remember Dario offering to... He wanted me to be a referee. He wanted me to be a coach. Sorry, he wanted me to be a coach first and foremost. He'd offered me uh, another another cracking decision I've made. I'm digressing a bit here, but another cracking decision I've made was when I was a YTS, he pulled three of us over to the side and said, I want you to start coaching. Two of us, two of them said yes, and I said no. If I'm honest, it's probably because I like Saturday nights too much and didn't fancy the Sunday mornings. And uh, the other two were Neil Critchley and James Collins. Obviously, one's manager of Blackpool now, and James Collins is manager of Wolves under 23. So that was another great decision of mine. So he'd, he'd already uh, tried to get me to coach. I'd said no. Then he, then he wanted me to be a referee, and I didn't fancy that, which again, I think, I think, I think I, don't know, I was immature, so immature, just like moody and sullen, really, at that time. I was thinking, no, I don't want to. Who wants to be that guy in the middle? But, I mean, it, I couldn't run anyway at the time, so well, I wouldn't have been the best referee. Yeah, and, and then he and then he did. He said, "Do you want me to call this guy? Do you want me to call that guy?" Um, in the media, and and probably got me speaking to Gwyn. I remember going into the Sentinel for a day's work experience, and and having to ring up uh, Dealey Dealey had a bowler for an interview. Who'd not long previously stood on my toe and more or less broke it in training. You know, weird experiences like that. Um, and then up, you know, in a, in a, had a few months at a press agency, and then and then got a job at the Chronicle. And then once with the Chronicle, then I, I did have a bit more of an idea. It was right, I want to get, I want to get to the sport role so that I can, I can cover the club again. Bit sad, really, isn't it? But uh, that was that was what happened. Well, we'll end part one there. I would just say, as terrific as that was, I do disagree with Pete on his final point. Getting paid to watch the Alex up and down the country sounds the opposite of sad to me. Please do let us know what you thought of this special episode. Part two is due out next Thursday, but we'll be back on Monday with our regular format. Until then, goodbye. Dang, 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 ding, dong, ding, blue moon.